0: Hello and welcome to Literary Prospects, where we talk to authors and other literary professionals about books, publishing, and the writing life. I'm Kelly Vick, the host of the program, and it's my pleasure to introduce our very first guest, author Julia Dahl. Julia is the author of four novels, including Conviction, Run You Down, and Invisible City, which was a finalist for the Edgar Award for Best First Novel, one of the Boston Globe's Best Books of 2014, and has been translated into eight languages. Her latest book, The Missing Hours, was just released and is receiving rave reviews. A former reporter for the New York Post and CBS News, Julia now teaches journalism at NYU. So, let's get started. Julia, thank you so much for joining me on the inaugural episode of Literary Prospects. I'm really excited to have you here, and your new book is amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. I read it in almost one sitting. I I do have a kid, a six-year-old, so um, it's difficult to read anything in one sitting, but I think it took two, so that's really, that's, Saying something, um, <laughs> so I'm really excited to talk to you about it. So we will, um, we'll jump in. And actually, you and I were sort of just discussing earlier um, the difference these days in um, in promotion of your book and and the the new book tour. So um, I was interested to hear a little bit more about how your experience has been with this book. Um, in the time of COVID. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, first of all,
1: thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I'm totally, I'm, I'm honored and excited. Um, yeah, you know, I, previously, so book tour now, at least for most of us, is virtual events. Um, and I actually kind of love it. I mean, partly I love it because I, like you, have a small child and just like jotting up you know, gent- jetting off to random cities for not that necessarily many to be, people to show up is not really on the list of things I, I want to spend my time doing. You know, as, as when, I, when my first book came out, I didn't have a kid and it was, it felt a lot different. I was like, well, sure, I'll just go wherever anybody invites me. But the secret to book tours is that most authors, like the big authors, the James Patterson's, the Gillian Flynn's, the Sally Rooney's, the publishers pay for them to go all over the world right to to, to book tour but the rest of us the sort of mid-list authors who have contracts and you know sell books but we're not you know selling millions of copies we pay for our book tours and so I would get invited to bookstores you know around the country which you know again is a success like it's cool to be invited to a bookstore but I had to pay to go um and I, my first book I did that I went you know to bookstores all over the country um and some were great successes and some like literally three people showed up and two of them were related to me (laughs) that's humbling (laughs) um but most authors you talk to have that story um but now that i have a you know an almost six-year-old it doesn't actually seem as fun to run all over the country going to bookstores um especially knowing that i don't think that it actually moves that many more copies than something else, like potentially a virtual event. And a virtual event, I think, is great. Well, A, it's great for me because I can just, like, run upstairs, put on my makeup, you know, uh, and, and and you know, just rearrange my office a little. Um, But also because it means that people from all over can go. Like, if if I was doing a bookstore event at the Poison Pen, which is where I did an event for one of my first books, which is a fantastic um, mystery crime bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. If you're not in Scottsdale, Arizona, you can't come to the event. But, you know, so I did an event um, through NYU last night, but my parents who live in North Carolina logged in and I have a student who lives in China who logged in. And then I did an event for a bookstore in, in Chapel Hill last week. And I had people, friends from California who logged in. So in a way, it might even be better for in terms of like getting more people involved. Also, it doesn't take that much effort, even if you're in town. You have to like, you know, put on clothes and drive there. But if you're not, in, you know, but you could just like log on while you're cooking dinner or something.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So maybe this is the new way.
1: <laughs> you know, maybe it'll be like we'll, you know, every. I did do one live event in my. I live up in New York Hudson Valley, and there's a bookstore in Newburgh called The Barking Goose, and they have an outdoor seating area. So I was like, well, because I'm pr- still pretty COVID cautious. And I said, "Well, if I can do it outside, let's do an event." And fortunately, it was beautiful weather until the very end when it rained. But and you know, we just set up tables, and I had a table to sign, and I invited friends, and they had food and drink at the cafe, and it was awesome. So maybe you have one instead of five or ten.
0: So we we touched on the fact that this is your fourth novel; it's not your first. Um, your first three books. Centered around uh, a central character, which is reporter Rebecca Roberts. And uh, I believe that you had initially planned to have Rebecca appear in The Missing Hours, but uh, eventually this one became published as a, as a standalone work. Mm-hmm. So, what made you decide to leave Rebecca behind for this one?
1: Well, it kind of was just this, it, it didn't work for the story. The, the story that I wanted to tell in The Missing Hours was sort of inspired by a case I covered when I was a reporter at CBS News out of Steubenville, Ohio, back in, it was 2012 or 2013, and, and you know, long story short, um, a young, a teenage girl went to a house party and got really drunk and was assaulted by at least two boys, and and what made it even sort of more egregious and more 21st century was that the boys took pictures and video and, and sort of passed them around the town, and I covered this story, and I just couldn't stop thinking about this girl, and what it would have been like to, you know, have the trauma of being assaulted, but then the compounding trauma of, you know, having no memory of what happened, but knowing that all these people have seen pictures of you in this, like, t- totally humiliating, traumatic time, um, mm-hmm. and and never knowing going forward if the people you meet had seen you in that moment, like, how terrifying and traumatic that would be, so I couldn't stop thinking about her, and then, and, and further about her family, like what would it be like if your sister, that happened to your sister or your daughter or your best friend? Um, and so I, you know, I, I knew I wanted to write the story basically of, you know, if you read the first chapter of The Missing Hours, it's Claudia, the main character wakes up. She realizes, she doesn't know how she got home. Her, you know, she's missing pieces of her clothing and it's clear sort of how, the way she feels her body that, that she's been assaulted but she doesn't have any memory of it. So I, I knew I wanted to write a, a book that started with that seed and kind of, you know, how she dealt with it, but also what the ripple effects were for her family and all the people around her. Um, and yeah, I initially thought, okay, well, maybe Rebecca Roberts, because I was contracted, I have a contract with my publisher for another Rebecca Roberts book, a fourth mm-hmm. Rebecca Roberts book. And initially I thought, okay, well, maybe that's, um, uh, Rebecca will investigate that you know maybe sh- this girl goes missing and somehow Rebecca gets involved in rebe- investigating it and I actually wrote a lot of that but sort of after you know as I was writing I kind of realized first of all like every time I would go back to the Rebecca part I would be kind of bored like that wasn't I didn't want to tell another story with Rebecca in it right now mm-hmm. I wanted to tell Claudia's story and and d- dive more into her family and her the people around her um, so I talked to my editor and was like so what if um and fortunately I have a, a, you know an amazing editor uh Kelly Raglan at Minotaur and an amazing agent and they were both like we trust you you know make it good <laughs> um so I was like okay <laughs> so I, I I it was really like in service of the story the story did not need or want a kind of investigative reporter character it needed to just be focused on the the people who were personally involved so i i did that and i'm really glad i did
0: and you said that you will be bringing rebecca back for a fourth book i had noted that i wanted to find out if rebecca was coming back ever well i mean
1: i don't have i don't i don't have one in mind um, and I actually am writing another book, but it's not a Rebecca book. So I will like never say never to Rebecca because I love her. And I love the idea of writing about Rebecca, you know, her, the first Rebecca book came out in 2014. So we're getting on um, 10 years. So I love the idea of like in a few years, maybe writing a book where Rebecca like has a kid or, or is maybe in a, even in a different city or something like really switching it up. But for now, you know, I mean, when you, I didn't, when I started writing Invisible City, the book that became Invisible City, I didn't actually conceive of it as a series. I wrote it because I was really interested in writing about a reporter character. I was really interested in writing about the Hasidic community. Um, but after almost ten years of writing about it, i was I just sort of was like, okay, I'm interested in spending my time on other things. My brain, like you know I wanted to because when you're writing a book, you you live with those people in your head as much as you live with the people you live with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to live with other people. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be monogamous. To, I didn't want to be married to Rebecca anymore. We needed a separation. Um, I never thought of it that way. But anyway, um, and so I, put, I have put her aside for now, but I really like her. And I, I, you know, I, I imagine in a couple books, she will come back. I, I, will def, I, I think I will definitely buy another one, but it'll probably be a while.
0: You've, um, you've said that all of your books are really about some sort of flaw in the justice system. So I am wondering, um, do you usually start out with the flaw and sort of build your plot around that? Or do you start with, you know, your bigger idea of the story and then sort of work in the applicable flaws? (laughs) That's such a good question. So, I don't usually
1: start with the flaws like what I usually start with it actually is a little bit different for every book with Invisible City it started mostly with the idea that I really wanted to learn more about the Hasidic community Um, and I also really wanted to write about a young reporter who was doing really morally challenging work and had like no supervision. And so was making lots of mistakes. And, and, and because I, you know, when I was a reporter, that was one of the things that that sort of, it was almost like a media critique when I first started Invisible City. Um, But it was also a critique of sort of the way that this insular community and the police had this kind of like, don't ask, don't tell relationship in New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the first book. The next book was really I if you've read Invisible City, you know that the sort of ghost character in the book is is Rebecca's mother, who abandoned her when she was a small child. And as I was writing Invisible City, I thought, I really want to know what happened to the mom. Like what why did she abandon her? Where did she go? And that was sort of the crux of the next book. Although it was also married with the idea that while I'd been in, in reporting Invisible City, because I really had to report in order to write this novel about a community that I was not a part of, um, I met a lot of people in the Hasidic community, or who many of whom, most of whom, frankly, who'd left, who were gay and who, you know, couldn't basically couldn't live in that community. Um, and I was so inspired by and curious about their stories and the way that they had they sort of created their lives outside of the community and um and that was the inspiration in a way for the second book and then the third book the inspiration was a little more about a kind of larger injustice and that was the the, the third book is conviction and it's about a young man um in in the early 90s a young black man who's who's sort of quickly convicted of murdering his family um, and Rebecca sort of gets a note from him 30 years later saying like, I didn't do this, please help me. And that was inspired by just the like barrage of wrongful conviction cases that we started seeing in the, in the mid to the mid and late 2000, 2000s, 2000, early 2010s, um, starting with, you know, one of, the, one of the big cases was the Central Park Five, these, these young boys who'd been convicted of raping and beating a woman in 1989 and they were exonerated. And I felt like every time I opened up the paper, it was another, like, basically black man who ha- had been convicted as a teenager, often, or a young person of a crime. And now DNA and new witnesses or witnesses recanting showed us they didn't do it. So that was the the, the inspiration for conviction. And then with The Missing Hours, it was very much story. It was, I want to dive into what it is like to be this, a woman who's had this happen to her, a young woman who's had this happen to her, but married with that is the the problem in the justice system, which is that, that it is vanishingly um, rare for a, a sexual assault specifically, especially a sexual assault that involves alcohol where the woman was drinking, especially if she decided to drink herself. If you drug someone and rape them, you have like a little more chance of getting convicted. Um, but the, the just the fact that, that those cases are almost never get to trial and to a conviction. And what? And I, and so I, I wanted to sort of dive into what it's like as a woman to know that, like this happened to you and you, but, but the character of Claudia is pretty savvy, right? She's a wealthy, privileged, educated woman in New York City, young woman in New York City. And like, as soon as this happened to her, she knows like, nobody's gonna believe me. It's not like I'm gonna be able to walk into the police station and be like, those guys wronged me, put them in jail like it's not going to work like that. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to sort of explore what it is like in this time when a lot of women know that something like this could happen to them and they're not likely to get any kind of sort of quote unquote justice from the justice system. So what do you do?
0: And for most of the missing hours, you stick with three main points of view, which are Claudia, the victim, Edie, uh, her sister, and Trevor, who is a friend of Claudia's who gets sort of roped into, into helping her out with this whole thing. But there is a brief, sort of a brief part, I think in part three, where you do um, slip into the POV of uh, the perpetrators of this crime and the, you know, the father, attorney, and I won't give too much away, but um, I was interested in your decision to do that and how you chose to include and thought that it was important to include those points of view uh, as right. well. Well, there's a, a, several reasons.
1: One is that I really love reading books where you get multiple points of view. And I really love reading books where you get the bad guy's points of, point of view, right? I feel like you learn something about a crime when you, when you get a minute with the bad guy. Mm-hmm. so I, I mean, part of it was just, this is the kind of book I like to read, and I, I always try to write a book that, like, I'm enjoying reading at that time, like, for this book, I really wanted it to be, like, short, like, kind of punch you in the face, short chapters, fast-paced, because that was what I wanted, and I think some of that was the pandemic, right, like, my attention span was just <laughs> shot, um, but I also really wanted this book to be not just about the the effect of a sexual assault on on the sort of victim whose body it's perpetrated on, but the ripple effects and the fact that that a sexual assault is going to affect the perpetrators and it's going to check affect their families and it's going to affect people even beyond them. And so I wanted to sort of acknowledge that truth in part, and that was one of the reasons that I gave them each you know like basically a chapter. Um, but I also wanted one of the things that i wanted to do with this book and i mostly do this through trevor but but through the sort of perpetrators i really was interested in talking a little bit about or really more exploring and asking questions about masculinity young men in this day and age um, and you know i have a son um, who's six and i need to help him become a good man right and i have you know my best friend is my husband who i have lived with now for 15 years so in a way, like I spend most of my time with the males of the species. And yet mostly what I've written has been women. Um, I, I have a sister, you know, most, you know, my roommates before my husband were all women. I am a feminist, like, so, but, but as, especially I'm starting to raise a boy, I'm thinking a lot more about what is it like to be a young man? How and where do young men sort of quote unquote go wrong? Um, and then also and, and, and I, and, and, you know, very specifically around the issue of sexuality, right? Like, you know, I remember what it was like to be a teenage girl and like, starting to experiment with sex and starting to sort of come into my own sexually. Um, but I don't really know what that was like as a young man. And, you know, I mean, you know, if you're straight and I'm straight, the, you know, I was mostly dating, I was. I was dating men, so mm-hmm. I had to like my sexuality was entwined with dudes, right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't really know what was going on with them, you know? They were just like they, you know, they were they, they were just part of the dance. Um, but I, but a few years ago, I had a conversation sort of just randomly with my husband, and we were talking about this, like about you know just being learning or going into life as a sexual person. And he talked about how when he was a teenager, it was confusing to him that you know, or that he felt sort of a little bit unsure because he felt like women, you know, the girls want you to be nice and hold their hand and give them flowers and ask them to the prom. and But they also really like the bad boy, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're also supposed to be that sometimes. And he was like, it was confusing. I didn't know, what am I supposed to be? And as when you're, uh, you know, what do they want me to be? and then when you're a, a young person you're trying you're trying to create your personality and your values, so that was confusing and then also sort of trying to get it you know I mean you're always like I was always trying to like get a boyfriend or again and do guys are trying to like get, you know get laid. so how do you do that and also like keep your own moral compass and I wanted to explore that and i i for for trevor, I really explored i re, he was the guy in the book that I really explored that with because he's like you know, he really, he runs into Claudia and it's clear something really bad has happened to her. And he wants to help her. Like he truly wants to help her, but he also truly wants to like get naked with her. And he can't not feel that way. Like that is just how he feels. But so he's always sort of fighting that. Cause he knows like, he can't like make a move or anything like that, that would, that would be wrong. But he, but he's sort of frustrated with his body that still wants that. Um, and then the other the other two guys too, like I, they each have different experiences of masculinity and sexuality that that I think you know are you know they don't excuse what they did in any way. But there's a like I'm always interested in like why people go do make bad decisions, and and I wanted to give at least a window into how they got to that moment where they did this awful thing. We uh,
0: we talked about your son a little bit, and I to have a son which we have discussed and so the, the next question that I sort of had on my list for you was have were you thinking about him when you were writing this book and have you actually started I mean I know he's six my son is six. he's almost six right almost so, six, six yeah yeah so i mean have you do you feel this responsibility to start teaching him like about consent in these using these kinds of words at this age because I do I feel like yeah. I'm like yeah. telling him when he's on the playground wrestling around don't touch anyone's body unless you know unless they give
1: consent and that's exactly yes. what I do exactly <laughs> like like so and you know and this I'm I'm learning because I didn't have brothers little boys love to like just tackle each other and wrestle and they're you know and and so I'm and And sometimes they'll do that like to little girls who are like, no." And so you know, big thing is no means no. If she says no, stop touching. If, if he says no, stop touching, walk away. So that's important, obviously. yes. and and then we do, I have used and will continue to use the word consent because I think it should just be part of his vocabulary and and part of how he he um, knows to interact with the world and and exactly that, I like, you know, uh, I I he, we were like uh, we were at the park with some friends, and he has this one friend. And they're very, you know, they adore each other, and they both. Lo- I mean, they'll like literally wrestle on the lawn for thirty minutes, and it kind of looks like they're attacking each other. But then you look closer, and they're smiling. You yes. know, <laughs> <So I'm> like, <laughs> all right. You know, I and so I'll say as long as he consents to wrestling with you, that's fine. But if he set, starts to say no, then you have to stop. So mm-hmm. yes, absolutely, I think the word consent, like just it's just you know, and it's a simple thing. It's not, it's not necessarily about sex. It's like, if, you know, if someone, if you, if you are going to touch someone, they need to have given you permission or, you know, or you need to ask permission. That is a normal and should be a normal thing. So yes, very much so. (laughs) Because right, like from a woman's point of view, that's something, you know, I mean, if I had a little girl, I would probably have to be teaching her once she's a little older to do things like, be careful, you know, about getting drunk in public places, make sure your friends are with you, walking home alone, that stuff that sucks that we have to be taught. But I mean, you know, I was taught to like walk home with my keys in my hand in case somebody came behind me and I could like poke them, you know, it's was taught that at 10 probably. Um, and it, and it sort of sucks, but I would still be doing it for my daughter because my my goal would be to keep her safe. And with my son, you know, my goal is also to keep him safe, but it, it, it's like a different kind of safe, right? Like safe and, you know, he, he I know that he's already like a sort of strong kid, right? And so I know that like the thing that he needs to be safe from is not necessarily like other people hurting him, but how he interacts with other people. And, and so that he isn't perceived as, somebody who's aggressive or somebody who's overstepping the bounds right Oh, it's complicated
0: do you uh this is the first book that you have written since becoming a mom since I became a
1: mom yeah yeah do
0: you find that it's different is the experience of of creating the work different do you think your work is different or is it just Yes, the the experience was
1: definitely (laughs) different. It was so much harder, at least at the beginning, because, you know, like when you're, you know, I had sort of three pieces of my brain always, you know, was I had my day job, which was I was a reporter. Mm -hmm. I had my creative work, which was writing novels. And then I had the the rest third of my life that was like, you know, keeping my relationships intact, keeping my mental health intact. Right. Mm -hmm. The life stuff. And then all of a sudden in comes a, a child. And those things have to, like, there's only, there's, you know, there's only so much of the whole. So all of that gets like broken up and, and, and has to get rearranged. And it took me years to figure out, frankly, how to find time. And the easiest thing to kind of boot is the creative work, because even though I was under contract for a book and my blue passed that contract by two years, this book was supposed to be out two years ago. (laughs) Um, I, it was the one thing in my life that because I, I had an editor who was also a mom and was like, look, you got to figure out how to do your life before you, you know, that's the more important thing. And thank goodness she was like that. Um, so it was the one thing that was easy to be like, I don't have time to write right now. And really, but the thing that I really didn't have time to, to do or space in my brain to do was think about the book. And that, you know, I spend at least twice the amount of time. Walking around, sitting around, driving around, thinking about the book and who's going to happen, who's going to do what, and where and why and what their relationships are, as I do sitting and writing. And that, and in order to do that, you have to have space in your brain that's free, that's not thinking about the baby or not thinking about work or not thinking about you know we moved two years ago, not thinking about are we going to live, where are we going to live. And I just didn't have that space for a long time. And it was really frustrating and it made me really depressed and angry and, and I felt like I'll never write again. And, you know, it was hard, it was hard, but it, but, you know, I was really committed to this book. I was really committed. And I I think that if I hadn't been so committed to this story and to the idea that this was going to be a book that was going to be different and was going to be a book I would have wanted to read book that I wanted out there that like, I Mm -hmm. felt like wasn't out there yet. Mm -hmm. I probably would have just given up um, because it was really hard, but now six years in (laughs) um, now, you know, for the first time, my son is like, he went to school and out two hours ago and he will not be home for five hours. And um, that is a an amazing resource of time that I just didn't have for almost six years Um, because of the pandemic and he, you know, whatever. We just didn't, I was, you know, I and I made that choice too. I mean, I was, I could have, I don't, didn't have a full-time job But the last three years I've been teaching at NYU and doing manuscript editing. Um, But I, I made the choice to spend more time you know at home with my son because i i had the privilege to do that my husband you know husband could make some money and i could make enough money doing what i needed so i i'm happy i made that choice um but but it also just sort of slowed everything you know creatively and professionally down but now i'm back uh- <laughs> yay <laughs> but it does it really i mean for me at least and i have never been a person who can write like in the middle of the night i need 8 hours of sleep I, I need a block of a few hours to write. I'm not the person that can scribble like while I'm breastfeeding. There are people like that and God bless them. They're like angel miracles. I don't know how they do it. I'm, I'm envious. Well, also I have, you know, the, the privilege of frankly, having the ability to, I have a, another job and I have a partner who helps, you know, pay the mortgage. Um, <laughs> but right, like not everybody has that. And I have yeah. that. And I'm really blessed to have that. Um, but now... You know, it took, all, it took four years to write The Missing Hours, which is a lot longer than it took to write any of my other books. And I really hope, I've just started a new book and I'm, uh, you know, my goal is like 18 months. I feel like that is reasonable. We'll see. <laughs> 18 months to finish it, not to publish it. I mean, I figure like, you know, hopefully it's the end of, you're in the end of 2021. I hope it comes out like early 2024, maybe. So two and a half, two years, a little over two years. I don't know. We'll
0: see. Well, I was <laughs> wondering and, and I was wondering about um the missing hours, your your latest one and how long it took you to write it. So I was I'm I'm interested to hear that it was a long time because yeah. You know, the New York Times um, has called it, let's see, an adventure thriller and a great reckoning with the moment we find ourselves in. So congrats on all the great reviews. Oh right, and, you know, right. Yeah, here. that's, that's, I'll live
1: on that for 30 years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it is very, it feels very of the moment. And, um, and, and as I was reading it, I thought, and seeing all of these reviews, I thought, did she just... Hit this at the right time. She's been working on this. Has it been simmering for a long time? And it just so happened to sort of the the publication coincide with uh, with this moment where we're seeming to have this reckoning with consent and rape culture and power dynamics. All of these things have always, you know, we know been big problems, but they seem to be really at the forefront lately. So. Um, I was interested to know, like, oh, did she just whip this out in six months? <laughs> right.
1: Well, I worried about that because I actually started the book, like, before Me Too. I mean, I, I'm not alone before Me Too, but like, I see, that was 26, that was like this time of the year in 2016, right, a- around the election, mm-hmm. and um, I remember when Me Too happened, I, I probably had 50 pages or something like that, and I was like, shoot, like, is this book not going to be relevant anymore, <laughs> which is like a joke, right, mm-hmm. um, but But I mean, yeah, that's the sad thing is like, like it's just as relevant, maybe even more so as it was five years ago. I mean, and honestly, I think it's gonna be relevant for a long time, like, you know, until we figure out, I mean, sexual assault is never gonna go away. Crime is never gonna go away, right? You know, you hope that you make a dent in the numbers and we have, right? I mean, like the, the, you know, it is safer to live in the United States for, I guess not for everybody, that's really actually the, the huge caveat, but at the very least, like the crime rate has gone down significantly overall since even the 90s, right? Um, but, but I think that like, you know, the only way we make a dent in rape culture is men, right? You know, I mean, well, that's not actually true because women are, are part of rape culture, right? Like there's so much, that's not true. Let's forget that I said that. Um, you know, so much of this was actually something that I, I heard Megan Abbott talk about her new book, The Turnout, is at some level, it's about like two sisters and a sort of man comes and, you know, things blow up. And and one of the things she talked about um, as being inspiring or being an inspiration for the book was this podcast called Dirty John. Did you listen to Dirty John? Or there was also a TV show.
0: Yes, I remember. See, I've I've meant to listen and watch, but I haven't. Yeah,
1: so I listened to the podcast, but I didn't watch okay. the show. And, and basically, it's like, long story short, it's about a guy, like a kind of Casanova guy who cons a whole bunch of women. And the thing that she found interesting and took as like sort of a germ for her next book was the way the women involved, like, turned on each other and, and were just awful to each other about, like, how could you fall for this guy or what, you know. And, and that's part of rape culture, right? It's the way women look at each other and say, well, if she hadn't gotten so drunk. Or what did she expect at the bar by herself or something like that right like that's the same attitude that gets us to the idea that like a jury's not going to convict a guy if you brought him home um of your own volition and then he raped you right um so i you know and i think that you know i wanted to really talk about that in this book i wanted to like force people to recognize that you don't have to be a saint to deserve not to be victimized or to deserve justice, right? Like Claudia is not, and that was one of the things that I really wanted to do with this book is Claudia is not an easily likable person at all. Like she is rich and white and privileged and she's kind of a snob. And she's frankly kind of like clueless about the way, you know, anybody who isn't in her fabulous upper, you know, Manhattan life lives. but, and she's, you know, she's one of those girls on Instagram who'd post like bikini pictures and stuff like that. Right. But that doesn't mean that she deserves to get raped. Right. And, and I, but, and I wanted to challenge readers to sort of be like, I don't really like, you know, there's a lot I don't like about her, but she still deserves justice and she still deserves to be safe in her body. Um, you know, those are, those are questions I feel like maybe we're, we're getting better at addressing that, like, you don't have to be perfect to get justice or to be saved.
0: All right, hold on one, let me make sure. Oh, nope, I'm not muted. Okay, great. (laughs) We are, um, we're sort of coming towards the end of our time. So before, but before I let you go, um, I would really like to do a sort of quick fire round of some like, general writing and craft questions, if you're up for it. So um, the first one, which I'm sure you probably get all the time, but I like to ask everyone, um, is how did you get started? How did you get started writing? How did, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So
1: I started writing fiction and nonfiction at the same time. I was a senior in high school. My mom was like, you're good at writing. You should join the paper. So I joined the paper and it was really fun. And right about the same time I met a really cool girl I grew up in Fresno, California named Katie Kuzmar, who had really cool hair and really cool outfits. And she used to, she always had a notebook with her and a pen. And she was always just like writing little, little poems or little observations. And I thought, that's cool. So I bought a notebook and a pen. And like, I've never been without that notebook and pen. Um, So I just sort of, I loved playing with words. I loved, you know, it was a great marriage writing of my love for words and writing, I'd always read, you know, constantly had a book in hand. My mom's motto my whole life was bring a book, wherever you go, bring a book. And, um, But I also am a really nosy person. I really want to know what's going on in people's lives and, you know, try to climb inside their heads and writing was like the perfect marriage of that, right? I could kind of imagine my way into people's lives. Um, so, but you know, and then I went to college and we didn't have a journalism or really a creative writing major. So I just like did it on, you know, I worked for the school paper. I took a couple couple creative writing classes and enjoyed them. And then I, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to be a novelist. Like that was the dream, right? But I knew that like, first of all, I didn't have a novel when I graduated high school. <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't think you can just like make a living. Even I, I knew even then that making a living as a novelist is like very hard. So I was like all right I'm I'm going to work in media so I got jobs in in magazines and women's magazines and then at, at um and then at at the New York Post and finally CBS News and but throughout this I was always writing fiction I wrote a novel in my early 20s that's in a file somewhere on an old computer that I couldn't find an agent for I you know I couldn't sell it I wrote another almost a whole another novel that I abandoned and then you know, so I spent some time really focusing on journalism writing, and really I think that that I never stopped thinking about fiction, but the writing, the writing every day as a reporter, as a as a reporter, most it was at the New York Post that I sort of restarted being a fiction writer, forced me to recognize a couple things that I think are really important about fiction writing that that sometimes if you if you're just in fiction you don't remember. Um, one is that the story is paramount. Like, what, are you, what story are you trying to tell? And it doesn't have to be a p- super plot driven, but it could just be how this person reacts to this event, right? Mm-hmm. But that focusing on that and, the, and focusing on and privileging the story was really important. That, and that you have to do in journalism, right? Like, just tell me what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the, the importance of economy of words that, that most people are not super interested in how you know, beautifully you can describe the sky you know, um, or if they, if you get, you have to earn that big, you know, fancy description of the sky, but what people want are nouns and verbs, who thought what, what happened, why, and figuring that out made me a better fiction writer, but, but in terms of, like, the actual, like, how did I get an agent, um, it was a little bit, it was the, it was luck, it, it, and a little bit of, who you know, I was, my very first job out of college back in 1999 was I was a fact checker. I was an intern and then a fact checker at Entertainment Weekly. And um, one of the people who was like just a notch above me was this girl named Gillian Flynn. And I used to like make her photocopies and chat with her and she was nice. And then 10 years later, I wrote a novel and she, I had seen her books on the shelves. I mean, this was before Gone Girl. So it was before she was like the biggest writer in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. But I saw her first book, Sharp Objects, in a in a in Barnes Noble, and Noble. And I remembered, oh, Gillian, that's the girl from Entertainment Weekly. And I picked it up and I thought, oh, this is the kind of book I want to write. Like, it really was an inspiration to me to be like, if she can do it, I can do it. You know, like, we work together. So I, I wrote my book, you know, and it was eight or nine years later. And I just emailed her. Like, I, or maybe I even found her on Facebook and sent her a message. And I was like, hi, I don't know if you remember me. I was an intern. Um, I just wrote a novel and I wonder if you have any advice. And she messaged me back and said, oh, you you know, I gave her like the three sentence pitch for what my book was. And she said, your book sounds interesting. I mentioned it to my agent. Why don't you give her, why don't you send her 50 pages? And I got my agent. So it was like, and and, you know, in my previous novel I had queried a zillion agents and they'd all rejected me. So I think the book was better but also I just got really lucky and Gillian Flynn is a really nice person. (laughs)
0: How do you keep your writing organized? When... <laughs> I just rolled my eyes.
1: It's really hard. <laughs> um, it was really hard with The Missing Hours because it's got so many voices and because I'm trying to tell like a, a linear story, but the voices are people who are in different places and have different knowledge of the 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 plot, basically. And I had, I probably had like six sets of, note cards that I would put out with like who's talking when and what the plot points were and i move them around and then i throw them away and try it again. It was really hard. I will it, it's gonna be a while before I write a book with that many points of view again because it's it's tough to keep it organized. I had to just keep plugging away and moving pieces around and I can't tell me well like this book is kind of it's kind of a short book it's like 65,000 words and I have more than 70,000 words in an outtakes file of stuff I wrote that is no, not, that's not in the book. So I would write a chapter in like Edie's point of view and then realize, no, this, this needs to be told from Claudia's point of view. So I'd have to rewrite the chapter from somebody else's point of view. So I don't think I'm a good person to ask about organization. I am trying with this, <laughs> with this new book, with the book I've just started writing, I'm, I'm trying to do more upfront work about like, you know, building the sort of scaffolding of the plot um but I find that work kind of boring I kind of just want to like write um but I think that probably it, it saves me a lot of time and heartache if I if I do a little more upfront work so I'm trying to be better about that
0: that was actually the next question is do you sort of start out with you know the plotter or pantser right do you just kind of like sit down at your desk and Right, what you think about writing for that day or do you have this whole thing like built in your mind and you just choose where you're gonna dive in for this one and for most of the previous ones other than the missing hours because the missing hours is
1: not a like my other books especially the first two were very more traditional kind of murder mysteries like the first there's a body on the first page and you figure out who did it in the end um and the missing hours is very much not that so it didn't have that built in you know like kind of uh trajectory this book will be a little more like that in that there's like basically someone dies near the beginning and although the book is a, a, about a you know it's about a family it's about a town um you know the the sort of easy trajectory of at the, eventually i have to get to who did it right helps um but no, I'm not an outliner. I just like, I, so I, I, I have sat down to outline books and I've sat down to outline this book multiple times and I just get like bored. <laughs> um, so I'm more of a panther, but I'm trying to bring plotting elements into my work because I think probably it, it'll, it makes it easier.
0: Do you have a particular um, writing routine? Like, is there a a specific time that you write every day, or what? What does your routine look like? My routine is that I
1: really I have like writing days, and those are the days when well, until my son went to school, those are the days when I had childcare. My um, my husband's sister is a my best friend and an amazing woman. And she watches my son and has, since he was born two or three or sometimes four days a week, depending on sort of where I am in a book, if I like desperately need time. And on those days I write. Um, and usually I start out by, cause like I said, I feel like I need a block of time. Um, so I, but usually I start out like right after I finish talking to you, I'm going to um, go take a walk. And that helps me sort of focus my mind and think and get back into the story as opposed to all this other stuff going on in my brain um and often I have my phone with me and like I'll come up with a line of dialogue or a little plot point or a relationship something and I'll narrate it into the phone and send myself basically an email that I then get when I get to either back home or the coffee shop or whatever where I'm gonna sit and write for a couple hours. And I usually move around, like I now live in this, when I was in Brooklyn, I would move from coffee shop to coffee shop. And now that I live in the small town, there's one coffee shop and there's a library and there's my house. And so I kind of, I'll write somewhere for an hour and a half or so, and then I'll take another kind of stretch and take another little walk, write somewhere for another hour and a half or so. And those are the best days in the world. Like they're just where I I love, even when they're frustrating and I write a hundred words, you know, um, they really feel like days where I'm not the most myself, but like where I'm like accomplishing something and, and it's just fun. You know, I mean, if you writing can be really, really, really hard, but, but when you get the chance to just be with yourself and the characters, it's, it's sort of magical and it feels like it's such a privilege to be a published author. You know, I mean, I, I am not the Gillian Flynn. I, you know, I, my books sell. Okay. You know, but, but, but I get to publish them like that's, you know, the 17 year old me with the notebook, if I could have seen me now in my forties, I published my fourth book, the New York times liked it. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty. It's pretty great. And I and and on the days when I'm really frustrated with the writing or something else, I, I try to remember that and just go like, you get to do this, you know, you you're writing another book and you're gonna write another one after that. That's awesome.
0: What do you know now that you wish you had known when you were going through the process of publishing the first one?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um you really have to take it all in hand. You can't rely, you know, as much as like my publisher has been great. Um, but you can't rely on like just the publicist and the marketing person. They have 10 books or X number of books that they're focused on. You're the only one who cares about your book as much as you do. You know, I mean, this is your life for years. So, you know, I, for the missing hours took in hand a lot of like I mean I emailed everybody I was calling bookstores you know let me tell you about this book that I've got I'll send you book plates um I was you know in getting in touch with everyone I knew in media and other authors saying like can I send you a copy of this book can I send you an e-galley can I send you a, a hardcover galley um you know posting on social media that kind of stuff saying yes to every invitation right like you have to do the work and, and you have to drive the train. And like what I did this time was I made like a long list of potential contacts of people that I thought might like the book in media, right? You know, just, and not people I knew even, people who I saw on Twitter who review books. And I made a like an Excel spreadsheet that I shared with the publisher and was like, let's send to these people. And I didn't, I'd never done that before, but I think it helps them. They have a million things to do. So I would say definitely, Um, take the publicity in hand, you know, literally go take a copy of your book to the local Barnes and Noble and say, hey, this is going to be coming out in a few months. Um, You know, I'll sign copies, take a look, you know, all that stuff. Um, And then the other thing is that it won't change your life. Like I have such a, I'm sorry, um, I have such a vivid memory of like the week before my first book came out and and I was talking with my husband about something and I was like, well, but that'll be after my book comes out, things will be different. Because nothing's really that different. <laughs> like, you know, I have the satisfaction of having published books and accomplished a dream. And, you know, I make a little bit of money from it, but it's not, an, you know, I don't, I, I tell my son that if I sell a million copies, we get a pool. Like we don't have a pool yet. You know, it's not, it doesn't change it but it doesn't change your day-to-day life at all. Um, know you're still living with the people you're living with you're still doing the other work that you're doing you're still you know it's you're still you just and and what it changes is is a sort of mental psychological and satisfaction a little bit but i i really had some idea that it would like change my life and it it didn't
0: well what might change your life and this (laughs) this will be our last question um if when um your one of your books is made into we'll say the missing hours is made into um a tv series or movie what do you picture being the theme song oh my god that's such a good question
1: (laughs) i wish you'd asked me further i would have thought about it i did have some have a theme song for one of my other books what's the theme song for the missing hours well It's gonna be something angry. Oh gosh, I wish I could say maybe, um, I'm thinking of like one of my favorite, one of the songs that comes to mind is there's this great pink song called Trouble, Um, but it's almost a little too happy. Oh, it's a great song. It's so (laughs) rocking. It's like, I'm trouble. Oh, it's a great song. maybe I'll say that although it's a little too up like happy but maybe that I'll say pink's trouble
0: okay I like it I like it
1: that's a good one (laughs) yeah you can play that it's a great I I actually haven't listened to it in years but it's a great song I'm actually for my new book I I didn't listen to a lot of music when I was writing the missing hours but I'm I'm making a playlist for the new book I'm I'm working on. And, and, and I kind of wish I had done that for the missing hours now, they, especially they say that Yeah.
0: <laughs> How do, what's on your playlist for your new one? A, a good little, <laughs> um, <laughs> a
1: couple of the Taylor Swift songs from Folklore. Um, here, wait, let me, I'm going to actually look at it. Um, uh, wait, hold on. I'm, I'm pulling up the, the playlist. Where's my book. It's called book five playlist. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I've got a couple Taylor Swifts. I've got, oh, the, some, some Pogues. I'm a fan of the Pogues. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little bit of, there's this great uh, singer songwriter named Kathleen Edwards, mm-hmm. um, who has a, a song that this might be, it might be the theme song for this book, I don't know, called Six O'Clock News. That's really a great song. Um, a little bit of Green Day. Uh, there's actually a Green Day moment in The Missing Hours, but I'm a huge Green Day fan, like the, it, it was big, they, they were really big when I was a, a teenager in, in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, and there's also a little, like, oh, that, the, um, um, there's this great song by Pete Droge called If You Don't Love Me, I'll Kill Myself, <laughs> but it's, like, really kind of a fun, happy song. It's song. <laughs> um I'll, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this like when the book comes out I'm keeping this playlist and I'm totally gonna share it
0: um, oh yeah I was gonna say you yeah sh- you share the playlist with that okay but
1: right now I feel like the main the theme song honestly for the new book is this great song from folklore uh, Taylor Swift and I'm not like a big Swiftie at all um mm-hmm. you know I just she's never been like gotten it but I really like that album called Betty which is this song from the point of view of a, a teenage boy who's, who basically cheats on his girlfriend and, and he's desperately trying to get back with her. And the new book that I'm writing is told mostly from two points of view, a mother who's like in her 40s and a son who's in his 20s. And, um, and so, so I'm doing that male point of view again, which I'm really excited about. Again, like, I feel like I'm not sure if I would do that so much if I wasn't the mom of a son and, you know, my best friend was uh, my husband, um, but I'm really excited to write a guy again.
0: Did you start the new one as soon as you finished your last one? Do you do that? Do I, you, you sort of feel like you've got to get on to the next thing? Or do you? Yeah, to-
1: yeah, especially because the missing hours was like so long in working. And even as I was doing the final revisions, I was I, I was thinking about I kind of got the idea for this book, probably at least two years ago. Um, And then I kind of was like, well, am I sure this is the book I want to write like I wanted to let it sit for a while, because you know, it's gonna be the next multiple years of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I started just like making notes about it and notes about character and notes about relationships. Um, It's been probably been close to two years that I've been thinking about it and then I did but and then let's see I started like actually putting words on the page probably yeah probably like six months ago but I don't have very much at this point like it's just very dabbling I have as much that I've cut again as that I keep
0: <laughs> well we can't wait <laughs> so, 18 months right I, well, we'll see. yeah <laughs> knock wood if, if the schools don't go into lockdown again oh right oh god <laughs> right, I, laugh. I know Thank vaccine you so
1: for much. young people! Yay! <laughs> I know.
0: Thank you so much. This has been thank you. And it's great to get to talk to you and get your perspective on all of this and talk about your amazing books. So uh, thank you for having me. This is super fun. I can't wait to see who you see who comes next. This sounds well, like a super cool project. Yeah. thank you so much, Julia. Thanks for joining us on our very first episode of Literary Prospect. If you liked what you heard, please click subscribe and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.